Stanford University. Hi, I'd like to keep this uh, informal, although we can't really because of the setting. With such a small group, it would be nice if you could ask me questions along the way, but unfortunately we have to save them um, until the end. Um, so I, um, as you heard, uh, I'm from the East Coast, trained in Boston and spent 10 years at Penn, and I'm a transplant to here just about eight months ago. Um, what are thoracic surgeons? Uh, so we're building a group of thoracic surgery here at Stanford. There are now four of us who do just thoracic surgery, which basically means surgery of the lungs, uh, a lot of lung cancer and emphysema surgery, surgery of the mediastinum, which is basically everything between the lungs that's not the heart, and there are tumors that develop there, uh, surgery of the chest wall and the diaphragm and the esophagus. Um, and my focus is really lung cancer, uh, emphysema, and mediastinum. Um, so those are sort of my areas of expertise. Today we're going to talk about surgery for emphysema. Emphysema is one of the most common diseases. Um, it is uh, a complicated disease to operate on because the patients who have it are often very fragile. In fact, it's only allowed to be managed. Surgery, lung volume reduction surgery, which is what I'm going to focus on, is only allowed to be done at about 30 centers in the, in the whole country. Um, and, but Despite that, if the patients are well-selected and the, and the people caring for the patients are experienced, the results are outstanding, I think. Some of my happiest patients are, are patients who have had volume reduction surgery. So um, why is it interesting? Well, it's interesting, first of all, because it's a very common disease which has little effective therapy. Basically, once you get emphysema, it's a gradual downhill course. Although smoking will slow uh, quitting smoking will slow down that downhill course, it doesn't doesn't halt it, unfortunately. Um, surgery can really be life-changing for, for people who are appropriate candidates for it. It's also interesting from a biological, uh, well, emphysema is interesting from a biological point of view, how, uh, how it happens. And surgery for emphysema is sort of counterintuitive. As you're going to see, we're going to talk about taking out part of the lung in somebody who's got bad lungs already. So how can that work? Well, that's an interesting thing. Um, and it's interesting socioeconomically because basically um, the government, what's called CMS, who determines payment for things, decided, despite a lot of evidence, that this operation needed to be studied in a randomized fashion. That is, randomized patients to surgery or no surgery. And I may be saying something that, it, that, the, that the people in the audience already know, which led to a lot of um, interesting sort of sociopolitical dynamics. So what is emphysema? Emphysema is a disease that's caused primarily by cigarette smoking, but not entirely by cigarette smoking, um, in which the lung loses its normal elasticity. That is, the lungs normally have a tendency to contract in your chest and force air out. Exhalation is passive. Um, it just happens because your lungs want to rebound to a smaller size, whereas inspiration is active. You have to actively breathe in with muscles and make the lung expand. 
Um, so when the lung loses its normal elasticity, it then progressively enlarges in the chest. And that leads to reduced ability to move air in and out and reduced ability for the lung to exchange gas, which is what the lung needs to do, exchange oxygen in and carbon dioxide out. So all of those things lead to shortness of breath, or what we call dyspnea. Emphysema was really first described by Lanek, who was a Frenchman who uh, invented the, uh, invented the uh, auscultation of the chest. And this was his uh, initial treatise on auscultation. A lot, of it, uh, a lot of it was about the heart, the cur, but a fair amount of it was also about the lungs, les poumons, which is spelled differently in French now, I think, than it's written there. Um, and what he wrote is, the whole chest in these emphysema patients yields a very distinct sound. Instead of its natural compressed shape, it exhibits an almost round or globular outline, swelling out both before and behind. The chest becomes enlarged because the lung becomes progressively distended, and then therefore the ribs become distended. This conformation of the chest is sufficiently remarkable to have enabled me sometimes to announce the existence of emphysema from simple inspection. That is, just somebody walks in the door and you can look and you can see that they have emphysema. The, then also he looked at autopsies of patients with emphysema. The lungs seem as if confined in their cavity and when exposed, instead of collapsing like a normal lung does, they actually rise out, they push out as though they've been released from a compressed state and they project beyond the borders of the thorax. And this is Frank Netter's drawing. This is a famous medical artist um, and his drawing of a patient with emphysema and you can see that this gentleman is not breathing comfortably. He is working hard to get air in and out, um, stabilizing his arms on the chair so that he can use the muscles of his chest wall more effectively to breathe, pursing his lips to create something called auto-peep, uh, which allows uh, basically for better transfer of gas within the lungs. Here's a video showing that in more detail. And what you're going to see on the left is a patient before what I'll talk about, which is lung volume reduction surgery where he is using every muscle in his body to breathe. And then on the right, a patient after volume reduction surgery who you'll see is breathing much more normally. This is the same, same person before and after surgery. You can see he's put on some weight as well because less work of breathing after, after having had the operation. There he is. This particular patient had oxygen before and didn't need it afterwards. But it's an amazing change that you see. Um, in these people, using just every muscle to try and get air in and out and completely comfortable afterwards. And you can imagine the change in quality of life. So what happens? Cigarettes, in most patients, lead to uh, what we call inflammatory cells moving into the lung, create an inflammatory process in the lung, which basically destroys the walls between the air spaces in the lung which leads to loss of elastic recoil. Really, it, it destroys elastin, which is what gives the lung its springiness. And there, therefore, you lose this elastic recoil, recoil I described. You get increased volumes of the lungs, expansion of the rib cage. The diaphragm, therefore, becomes flat, so it can no longer do this to help bring air in. Therefore, inefficiency of the respiratory muscles, which increases your work of breathing and makes you feel short of breath. That's sort of simplifying it. It can also happen from alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency. If you're born with a deficiency of, of the enzymes that counteract elastases, 
that is enzymes that break down elastin, then you can also end up with emphysema without smoking. It's a little bit of a different um, presentation. Here's what, if you take a lung and look at a normal lung, you can see how tiny all the little spaces are. I'm trying to find my pointer here again. You can see there are these little tiny spaces, and in each one of these spaces, these are called alveoli, you have air, uh, oxygen, and carbon dioxide being exchanged. When you have developed emphysema, you have something that looks more like this, where the spaces have coalesced into these gigantic spaces that don't exchange gas as effectively. And so then what you have is on, on the left here, you have basically this gigantic enlarged lung squeezed into an essentially normal-sized or slightly enlarged chest. And that leads, this being an airway that air has to move in and out through, that leads to squeezing down of this airway so it's very difficult to push air out. And it also leads to, as I mentioned, the diaphragm on the far side, which normally sits up like this, curved, and contracts to allow you to breathe in. It makes it flat. So basically, it can't, it can't move air anymore. So emphysema is sort of a subcategory uh, of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, COPD. And COPD can be consist uh, consists of emphysema, chronic bronchitis, and asthma. Um, emphysema is more of a structural problem within the alveoli, with destruction of the alveoli, as I showed, than a problem with the airways that convey, that convey air in and out. Chronic bronchitis is more of a problem within the airways, um, where the airways become thickened and narrowed, and there's a lot of mucus production. Um, both of those are most commonly caused by cigarette smoking. Asthma is more of a congenital, um, a congenital issue, something that people are basically born with a predisposition to, um, or sometimes environmental. Emphysema is definitely the most amenable to surgery of, those, of these three. So we're talking primarily about emphysema. Um, all patients with COPD are on a little bit of a, a spectrum between these. Some people are sort of half chronic bronchitis, half emphysema. Some are pure emphysema. Some are really pure chronic bronchitis. It's generally the emphysema patients who are the better surgical patients. And how big a problem is this? It's a huge problem because of advertising for cigarettes over the years, making cigarette smoking cool. And you know, beautiful women smoking cigarettes lively. And what you have on this picture here is this curve right here shows over the years the incidence of, of uh, cigarette smoking, tobacco consumption. You can see it did, has gradually fallen, mostly in men rather than in women. So this is the curve of COPD in men, and that has fallen a little bit in the last few years as cigarette smoking has fallen among men, but COPD in women, while still lower, has continued to rise because smoking in women has not really fallen off very much yet. And chronic lung disease is the fourth leading cause of death, so this is not a minor problem. Unfortunately, it's not the fourth most funded area of research, which it should be, um, but it continues, doesn't quite have the lobby that breast cancer, for example, has, unfortunately. So why surgery? for emphysema, why would you even think of doing surgery for this? Well, the death rate when your FEV1, which is one of the measures, pulmonary function testing measures um, of, of 
of COPD that we use, if, if you are at less than 30% of what you would be expected to be for your age and size, you have about a 60% mortality rate within three years. And the medical therapies, as I alluded to, are only marginally effective. They can um, reduce the incidence of exacerbations of the disease where people have to come into the hospital and get treated for pneumonia, et cetera. They can make people feel a little bit better, although not hugely better. Um, even quitting smoking, as I said, doesn't make the progressive downhill course go away. The only thing that's been shown short of surgery to improve survival is giving oxygen in certain patients with emphysema, patients who actually have a low oxygen level when they're, not, when they're in room air. All these other things don't impact survival. Um, so you start to think about radical things when, when nothing else is really doing very much good. So for years, people have been trying things. A lot of them were based on false understanding of physiology, as you would imagine. Um, phrenicectomy, for example, means cutting the phrenic nerve, which is a total disaster because you're cutting the nerve to the, to the diaphragm, which is only going to make breathing worse. The idea was, though, that people looked at chest x-rays and saw that the diaphragms were flat. So let's cut the phrenic nerve and make the diaphragm come back up, but then it doesn't move at all. So, um, you know, abdominal belting to try to push the diaphragms up by pushing in the abdomen. None of these things worked. The first operations on the lung itself, though, for sort of emphysema were bolectomy procedures. So some patients, not necessarily people who smoke uh, or smoked, and uh, although some of them do, um, and not really emphysema per se, but the same physiological problem are people with giant bullae. And so here you have relatively normal lung over here, pretty much a normal chest x-ray, heart in the middle, lungs on each side. Um, and here you have a giant balloon where there's basically no lung parenchyma there. I think you can see the, the difference. And here you have lung that looks denser because it's being compressed by this bulla. And here it is at surgery, this giant balloon. And if you take that out, the relatively more normal lung that is nearby is allowed to basically expand and function more normally. So initially, this was done, not necessarily in patients with emphysema, but with giant bullae. Here's another couple other examples of patients that I've had with giant bullae, a giant one there on the left. Uh, and here's one filling entire, uh, essentially the entire uh, left lung on the far side, which we removed and then patient did extremely well. But most patients don't have bullae. Most people have basically diffuse emphysema uh, to a greater or lesser degree. That is, they may have emphysema that's equally bad at the tops and the bottoms of their lungs, or they may have emphysema that's a little worse at the tops and a less severe at the bottom. And it turns out that the patients who are the best candidates for volume reduction surgery for emphysema are the ones that do have differences where some areas are relatively preserved and other areas are less preserved, so it sort of approaches the situation where you have a balloon, you know, a ballooned out area. So lung volume reduction surgery is an operation for patients with emphysema without bullae, where we remove a portion of the emphysematous lung, preferably the worst portion, and try to improve everything for them, including survival. It's like a bolectomy in patients who don't have bullae. You take out the parts of the lung that are most severely diseased, and you try to leave the parts that are not so bad. And here, uh, it probably doesn't project very well, but here is an image 
of a patient who doesn't have giant bullae, but does have what we call heterogeneous emphysema, where up here you have worse emphysema, you can see how much more um, black it looks. And down here, you have more normal lung. Not normal, but more normal, same thing. And more emphysema, less emphysema as you go down. And that's a fairly common um, presentation of emphysema uh, related to cigarette smoking. And after a volume reduction operation, you see you now have pretty much equal distribution of the, of the, of the density of the lung from top to bottom. And you can see the diaphragms also that used to be all flattened down here are now up to a more normal position and able to function. That's an, uh, a film about six months after the surgery. So how is it performed? You go through either a median sternotomy or through what we call thoracoscopy on each side through small incisions, and I do it both ways. Um, I drew these arrows down because when, you, when I first started doing this operation, you're sort of timid and you don't want to take out too much lung, but over time I've learned that the more you take out, the better. So those arrows are probably moved down lower from when I first made these images. And that's sort of the line of resection of the lung. You take out the stuff above that line and you leave the, you leave the lung below the line. We do it through a median sternotomy, like somebody who has a heart operation, when we do it, decide to do it in the open manner. And then you get into the chest and the artist tried to show the upper part of the lung here being a little bit more full of blebs and sort of ballooned out areas, and this part down here more normal. And then you do one side and then the other. We use these staplers, and we use buttresses on the stapler. This is actually Gore-Tex. Again, I'm having a hard time finding my pointer. There it is. So this is Gore-Tex right here, which lines the staple line. The, the patients with emphysema have very fragile lungs, and one of the Achilles heel of the operation is having air leakage from these staple lines. So we've learned that these buttresses help in terms of having this air leaking problem after the surgery. And then you put in a tube on each side and close the sternotomy. Or you do it on one side and then the other by thoracoscopy with these three small incisions. And then these are the typical lines of, of cutting out of the lung that we use, again, usually at the top of the lung that we're taking out the worst areas of the lung, which are up on the top. And then we put a tube in, and then we do the other side. Now you might say, what about lung transplantation for emphysema? I'm not gonna talk a lot, a lot about that. I don't consider myself expert in lung transplantation. Um, people who have lung transplants have very good palliation. Um, there's usually more than a year wait for an organ, um, which can be too long for some of the patients. Um, you end up replacing one disease with another to some extent. First of all, um, you have to be immunosuppressed. You take drugs to block your immune system so the organ doesn't get rejected, and that in itself leads to infections and can be itself be a problem. Um, also, there's something called obliterative bronchiolitis, which is basically chronic rejection of the lung, and it happens in almost every patient, so that there's only about 60% of patients still have their lung four years later. Um, a better option in patients who are candidates for lung volume reduction surgery is to have lung volume reduction surgery. And pay, people can typically go, as I'll show you, at least five years of improvement after that, and then they can still have a lung transplant later if they need to. So lung volume reduction surgery was first introduced way back in the 50s, although it didn't last for long then. Um, uh, a gentleman named Brannigan at the University of Maryland did it on a small group of patients. Um, and he understood pretty well what he was doing. He had the theory just right, but unfortunately, 16% of the patients died after the surgery, which is, uh, is a 
probably too high to continue doing something. And uh, however, he felt that 75% of the people who survived were subjectively better, uh, just asking them how they felt. So it probably was working, but I think he didn't have the ICUs at that time to basically get people through the operation. He didn't have the post-operative care like we know now how to take care of people. He also didn't have pulmonary function tests to really prove to people that it worked. He could just say, yes, patients feel better, but he couldn't prove it. So um, he stopped after doing, I think it was about 30 patients, as I recall. Um, here, this is pulmonary function testing, if you're not familiar with it. Uh, a patient blows into a machine, essentially, and also is put, I don't have it pictured here, put into a big plastic box to measure the size of his lungs, essentially. So we measure forced expiratory volume in one second, or how much air can be forced out in one second, and that's that thing called FEV1. And then we can measure these lung volumes, which are very important. And then finally, we measure diffusing capacity of gases, which tells us about sort of how each, each part of the lung, uh, or how the lung as a whole is exchanging gas. And those are things that are, are very important in selecting patients. So in 1995, Joel Cooper read this old paper from Brannigan and said, you know what? I think he, this guy was onto something, and I want to try it. Joel Cooper pioneered um, lung transplantation. So he, had, he knew a little bit about, about emphysema. So he did a small group of 20 patients. Um, they all survived the operation and went home. And nearly every one of them had dramatic improvements in their pulmonary function and their quality of life. And this uh, sort of set off uh, an explosion of lung volume reduction surgery around the country in the late 90s, uh, relatively completely unregulated. Um, and a lot of small centers doing it, maybe surgeons who didn't have a lot of experience taking care of, um, of relatively fragile um, individuals. Um, Cooper later published 200 patients with 4.5% mortality. And we now look at that as sort of an accept, less than 5% as an acceptable mortality rate for doing this operation. But you can, if you look at this, this is in the late 90s, all of these places that were doing it, and sometimes the mortality rate was a lot higher um, than 5%. And this is only the published studies. People who had mortality rates of 20% probably weren't putting it in the literature. And if you look at all those results, the mean FEV1 increased by 56%. So if before the operation, you were able to blow out 0.8 liters of air, after the operation, you were able to blow out 1.2 liters of air. And your quality of life improvement tended to be even better than that, all of the measures of quality of life, et cetera. The mean length of stay in the hospital, this is from the early papers. It's now significantly lower than this, as I'll show you. It was about 15 days. And the mean operative mortality in those early papers was 6%. And some things were learned from those early reports, and we had a pretty good idea how to do the operation and who to do it on. And we did learn for sure that the best candidates are patients with heterogeneous disease. That is where it's not, it's not exactly as bad all through the whole lung. The ideal anatomy, again, are these sorts of uh, patients. This is the same chest x-ray as I showed you before on CAT scan, where you can see there's less normal lung up here than there is here. This looks like a normal lung at the bottom. But up here, you can see these larger air spaces. <clears throat> and again, by picture, this is the area of the lung that's pretty much destroyed. But this down here is pretty, it's pretty normal. But there were a lot of things that we didn't understand after those initial series of, uh, of uh, reports about this 
um, patient selection, how exactly, you know, how, how sick can people be for us to do this and still make them better? Um, technical issues, should we do it by video or should we do it through by the middle? Should we do both sides at the same time or should we do one side, um, et cetera? How long will people be improved? Is there a survival benefit? Joel Cooper never thought that this was going to be an operation that would make people live longer. He thought it was an operation that would make people feel better, like a hip replacement. Um, turns out that it's both. So the published results probably didn't tell the whole story. And on the basis of, we can argue about why this was done, but basically the government decided they weren't going to let the operation go forward as it was. Um, sort of willy-nilly, and they decided that if you wanted to have this operation and you're a Medicare patient, that you have to enter a randomized trial run by the government. Um, about 30 centers were um, applied and, uh, and received permission to be part of the trial, and then um, if a patient met very, very non-stringent criteria. In fact, they let in many more patients than Joel Cooper would have operated on initially, and therefore some of the results weren't so good within this trial. Um, but you had to uh, be willing to be randomized to best medical therapy, which everybody knows doesn't, doesn't create a lot of uh, improvement, versus lung volume reduction surgery. So as you can imagine, not many people wanted to go into the trial. Um, and you know, the initial goal was 5,000 patients, and eventually they only accrued 1,200 patients. And um, while it was in the works, other randomized studies were done in other countries that proved that the operation worked, yet it still sort of went on. And then the way the data was presented was uh, basically uh, disastrous for um, the patients that could benefit from this procedure because the first report both published in the New England Journal of Medicine, so very widely seen. The first report reported on just the highest risk group, the patients that most people who knew about this operation wouldn't have operated on anyway. And it was reported that this high risk group had a 16% mortality. And that's what people read about volume reduction surgery, and that's what people, the take home lesson that people took, unfortunately. Um, and sort of the operation became um, something that uh, pulmonologists were afraid to send their patients for. Um, it was important to find that there was this high-risk group. My personal opinion is it should have been reported at the same time as the results in the good group, in the group that did well. Um, but we now know that basically if your FEV1 is less than 20% are predicted and your DLCO is less than 20% or you have homogeneous disease, then you shouldn't have the operation. Then the, finally, the, uh, the publication that reported on the non-high-risk group basically showed what, what most of us felt we already knew, um, which they broke it down into four subgroups. Three out of those four subgroups had significant improvements in pulmonary function and quality of life. Um, and one subgroup even had a survival um, benefit over medical therapy. Unfortunately, by this time, everybody had sort of stopped thinking about volume reduction surgery. So, um, so uh, it's difficult to get the word out that the operation is great for patients who meet the right criteria. So here's that sort of summarizing the results of that second paper, which is that, again, breaking it down into heterogeneous disease versus homogeneous disease. If you have heterogeneous disease, that is kind of asymmetrical disease, and a low exercise capacity, you, you not only have improvement in your dyspnea, but improvement in survival, um, probably because if you don't have an operation and you're in this low exercise capacity group, you have a very short survival. Um, 
and then you can see heterogeneous high exercise capacity or homogeneous high low exercise capacity. You have an improvement in dyspnea. The only group that you shouldn't operate on are that high risk group I showed before and patients who have homogeneous disease and a high exercise capacity, basically because they don't need the operation. Um, they're usually in pretty good shape and they don't benefit as much because they have homogeneous disease. <clears throat> Some other uh, detailed results which are probably um, not worth going into in, in the interest of time. Is the operation durable? Um, that is, how long do people benefit from the operation? Well, looking over in the upper right, here's my pointer. Here's preoperative quality of life. This is a, a very standardized score of quality of life, a, an interview um, where you know different questions are asked and scored on, on a scale. Um, went from 17 to 62 um, immediately after the operation, more than tripled. And 97% of the patients were improved significantly. And then if you go to three years after the surgery, still 87% are improved, but down to a mean of 44. And five years, 69% of the patients are still improved. And similar changes, um, gradual coming down to your baseline over, over five to seven years in formal pulmonary function testing. And then a, a little bit of a closer look at survival, the St. Louis group where Joel Cooper was um, looked, at, um, looked at Medicare patients, went back to the early patients right after the NET trial was begun, the National Emphysema Treatment Trial, and looked at patients they had already selected who they thought were appropriate candidates for the operation, and then looked at the survival in patients who had the operation versus those who were then denied the operation after the NET trial started and were randomized to medicine, medical therapy. And there was an 82% survival over three years in the surgical group and a 64% survival in the patients treated with best medical therapy. So who should get lung volume reduction surgery? I've shown you that, that the operation works if patients are well selected. So what's the selection criteria? Um, I talked about the advantage of having heterogeneous disease. Um, you need to have severe disease. We don't generally do this operation until somebody's FEV1 is less than 40% of predicted. Patients have to be severely hyperexpanded. That is, um, often people with chronic bronchitis don't really have this, these giant lungs. So they don't really have all those issues I talked about, about having lungs overexpanded. So I like to see the residual volume, basically one of the lung volumes we measure, greater than 200% of predicted. So more, your lung is more than double the size you would expect it to be, essentially, is one way of looking at that. Again, emphysema, not chronic bronchitis. Um, I don't like to see the PCO2, which is one of the measures of arterial, uh, measures of gas in the arterial blood, to be greater than 50 you don't want to have more than a small amount of pulmonary hypertension. That's high blood pressure in the arteries that lead to the lungs, which we can measure with an echocardiogram. And we have to be very cautious for people who reach that, those low numbers, around 20%, um, not only because of the results in the NET trial. People have to be, uh, have been able to quit smoking for six months, um, and they go into a, a formal pulmonary rehabilitation program so they're in the best possible condition coming into the operation where everything is as tuned up as it can possibly be. And everybody gets a cardiac stress test and an echocardiogram, as I mentioned, and we measure the lung volumes um, with, with a box. There are several ways of measuring lung volumes, but it's important to have it done where you actually get placed in a big, in a big plastic box. 
So my personal experience with lung volume reduction surgery, this is uh, all when I was at the University of Pennsylvania prior to, uh, prior to uh, last year. And we presented this last year at the, what's called the International Society of Minimally Invasive Cardiothoracic Surgery. I've done 67 lung volume reductions. Um, 53 of them were sort of classic lung volume reduction where we did both sides at the same time, where it wasn't a combination with a lung cancer operation or something like that. And uh, I've done 18 of them by um, the video camera approach and 35 by the median sternotomy approach for various reasons. I, I sort of like the median sternotomy approach because I think I tend to take out more lung when I do it that way, and I think that's very important to not take out too little. Um, but in patients who are the most fragile, I think they get set back a little less by the video approach. So I will do the most fragile patients with the video camera. So I had one patient pass away after the operation um, out of those 53 uh, cases with a 1.9% so mortality. We had 15.4% who had a complication of some sort, but um, none other than the one that led to um, uh, you know, a very bad outcome. These include pneumonias, atrial fibrillation, which is an arrhythmia of the heart, which got better with medication. And the mean length of stay in the hospital was about 11 days. And the mean duration of having a chest tube in is about 13 days. And how can one be longer than the other? Because sometimes patients are all ready to go, but they still have a little bit of air leaking from one of those staple lines. And so we let them go home with the tube in. And then I bring them back uh, about once a week until we can remove the tube. Um, once I had to reoperate on somebody for a persistent air leak. Um, and the FEV1 there, uh, is, was improved in these patients by a mean of 48%, so about, almost a 50% improvement. So we've learned that if we're careful in how we choose people, um, I, I should tell you I've probably seen twice as many patients as I've operated on. I mean, in other words, a lot of patients come to the office wanting volume reduction surgery, I say, I'm sorry, but I just don't think it's the right thing for you. I think we'd hurt you. you know? um, so if we're careful in how we select people, um, it's a very successful operation. People are markedly better, um, very happy, and as you can see, uh, as I showed you, very low um, uh, harm uh, to, to people. I should briefly talk about bronchoscopic lung volume reduction surgery. So. Um, like most things, everybody's tried to make it um, safer uh, and simpler and something that can be done without a big incision or without even a few small video camera incisions. And in fact, several companies have been formed trying to develop devices like this. The idea is if um, basically what we need to do is take out some of the lung, then why not take it out by just blocking off the airways to, to um, certain parts of the lung by putting something down in the um, airway. And so here, what you have is a valve, which is basically a one-way valve that allows sputum to go out, but won't allow air to go in. Allows air and sputum out, but doesn't allow it in. And you put it, this is in the airway, you put it with a bronchoscope, with a, you know, a tube that goes down through the trachea, and then you lodge it in the airways that supply the uh, parts of the lung that are the worst diseased. So it sounds like a great idea, but unfortunately, so far, it doesn't seem to show much benefit. Um, one of the companies just was denied FDA approval basically because the patients were slightly better, but not even in the same ballpark as after the surgery. Um, and the other company is in the midst of doing a randomized trial, um, Spiration, um, which I suspect will show about the same thing. But it has been approved to use for, uh, for other problems. For example, if we do lung cancer surgery on someone and they have a bad air leak, you can block off 
that leak sometimes using one of these valves. Um, so I'm not too uh, um, encouraged about what's going to happen um, with these devices. Uh, the, the problem is that even though you can block off these airways, air gets in from around, from the other lobes, the other segments that you haven't blocked off. And emphysema patients are known to have that, what we call collateral ventilation. And so basically, they can't really, um, in the long run, make those areas collapse. There's another um, concept that, that, again, Joel Cooper um, came up with, which is um, avoiding hyperinflation or, or improving hyperinflation or overinflation of the lungs by bypassing the small airways. He calls it airway bypass. And what it involves is basically going down with a bronchoscope and punching holes directly through the side of an airway right into the lung, sort of creating a new airway that bypasses those narrowed small airways that are further out in the lung. Um, this actually benefits from collateral ventilation as opposed to collateral ventilation being a problem. Um, so the idea is this is a video. And this is an amazing thing for anybody who's, who studies emphysema to see this, because you'd never see the lung, the emphysematous lung, in a living patient this way. This is the, a normal airway, and this is a hole that's been created out through the sidewall, and then a stent's put in to keep it open. And the idea is to let the air come right through that hole and out to decompress the lung. And this is in the midst of, a, of trials right now around the country. There are maybe 20 centers in the country that are doing it. We're not doing this at Stanford, actually, just because I haven't had a chance to, um, to get it going. Um, this is um, a, a lung from a person who got a lung transplant. So his emphysematous lung has been removed and then attached to uh, a device that pushes air in and, th and then let to relax. And this is a normal lung where you haven't done anything to it. And this, excuse me, this here is a normal lung, not a normal lung, but an emphysematous lung, which you have simply put in that device, put some air in, and then let it relax. And you can see how distended it is. It, it's not doing very well exhaling. Whereas on the, on the other side, on the right side, you have one where these stents have been put in. So you've created these holes through the side of the airway. And you can see that that lung now easily collapses and the air comes out. So that, that sort of shows that the concept is a reasonable one. It's a little more difficult than putting in, stent, than putting in those little uh, plugs that I showed you in the airways. But I think that theoretically it may work. So um, broader implications of LVRS, I mean, there are a limited number of patients with the right kind of emphysema to actually have the LVRS operation. But there are a lot of patients with lung cancer and emphysema. So probably the more broadly important implications of lung volume reduction surgery are that a patient like this, um, where you see a cancer indicated by the red arrow, who, and who has very severe emphysema, that right upper lobe, would probably previously not have been able to have an operation for the lung cancer, meaning they're very likely to die of the lung cancer. Whereas now we know that that person's pulmonary function is actually going to get better if we take out that upper lobe. You can see their lower lobe, lower the lower scan, has better lung parenchyma. It doesn't project very well. But this patient has much better lung parenchyma at the bottom. So he's going to get basically a volume reduction by having that cancer taken out and have better breathing afterwards so we don't have to worry about him um, doing well after the surgery. We would have previously said he couldn't have an operation. Um, so lung volume reduction surgery is, uh, is effective in improving dyspnea 
and improving quality of life in a subset of patients with emphysema. And then in one, in one group, the ones with heterogeneous disease, patients with heterogeneous disease and very low exercise capacity actually have a survival benefit by the operation. We can do the operation, at least at experience centers, with very low mortality and very low morbidity. And the concept of lung volume reduction surgery has allowed us to extend the indications for surgery in lung cancer and therefore save many more people from, uh, from lung cancer. I'm not uh, optimistic about bronchoscopic methods of lung volume reduction, um, but it's possible um, that um, one or more of them could be proven to be uh, effective sometime in the future. Thank you for your attention. There's no cutoff. Um, it's, uh, you know, what's important is how old physiologically someone is. Um, you know, there are 80-year-olds who are physiologically 60 um, and who are, you know, walking, uh, you know, miles every day and have never, you know, don't have one plaque in their coronary arteries and are, you know, and I, I haven't done this operation on an 80-year-old, but I've done it on several 75-year-olds who were physiologically more like 65. Um, I'm very careful. Um, you know, in, in, as, we get old, as you get older and older, but certainly it's doable regardless of age. And I, as I said, I tend to do it thoracoscopically um, in more fragile people just because they don't have that sort of setback that they get a little bit from a sternotomy in the first couple of days, and I think that's helpful. Almost everybody who has smoking-induced um, emphysema has both lungs, also alpha-1 antitrypsin as well, um, has it in both lungs. And so it's still a little bit controversial um, whether you should do one and then do the other one later, but I believe that you should do both at the same time um, and get your maximum impact. And um, that's the way I do it. That's probably the way 80% of the people around the world do it. Um, so if you're doing it through a sternotomy, you're just looking at both lungs at the same time. You just do one and then you do the other side right through the same incision. If you do it with a video camera, patient is on their side and you do one side and then you finish that and then you turn them on their other side but during the same operation and you and you do the other side no I, no I mean not not prophylactic it's the kind of thing where the risks are high enough that you only want to do it when people really need it um, so um, we will only do it if, if the FEV1 forced expiratory volume in one second is less than 40% of predicted. So 40% of a normal person for that age and size. Um, and as I said, we usually won't do it if we're, they're less than 20% of predicted. So you're talking about people who are between 20 and 40% of where they would like to be. But there's a whole variety of uh, other criteria, some of which I alluded to. For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.